Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program, CPI, PPI, retail sales. We've got a busy week of economic data ahead. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where the UK's Chancellor is facing a chorus of calls for tax cuts and more spending in his budget. I'm Brian Curtis in Hong Kong. The implications of Apple supplier Hong Hai setting up a plant in India. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We'll look ahead to the first Republican primary on the calendar. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend on Bloomberg 1130 New York, Bloomberg 991 Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 1061 Boston, Bloomberg 960 San Francisco, DAB Digital Radio London, Sirius XM 119, and around the world on BloombergRadio.com and via the Bloomberg Business app. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby, and we've got February jobs report on Friday, and this week the economic data does not slow down. We'll get CPI, PPI, and retail sales for February. For more, I'm joined by Ira Jersey, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Rate Strategist, and Jess Menton. She's Deputy Team Leader for U.S. Equities for Bloomberg News. Ira, we're going to start with that February jobs report that we got on Friday. Another strong headline number, 311,000 jobs added, more than forecast. The news, though, was mixed. The unemployment rate moving two notches higher. And although wage growth did slow, it still moved up, ramping up inflationary pressures. Let's hear what President Biden had to say about the report. This may be the part that pleased me the most about the report, the jobs report, is people who've been staying out of the job market are moving back in beginning to move back in. Jobs are available. Okay, Ira, the Federal Reserve says it all the time. The decision policymakers will come to on interest rates will be data-driven. What does this data mean for the Federal Reserve? Yeah, it means a little bit more of the same. I, I think that the, the fear that the Fed was going to hike uh, 50 basis points is still on the table, but not, not because of just this number, but because of how strong the January data was. Um, I, I think that the, the Fed's going to be a little bit happier with some of, the, uh, some of the numbers within the payrolls report that we received on Friday. But, but I think importantly, this week's data, as you mentioned at the top of the, uh, at the, top of the show, it's going, to, it's going to matter way more. So the CPI data on Tuesday, as well as the PPI data later in, in the week, 
Um, and, and then retail sales, of course, is going to be huge as well. And, and keep in mind, we get this data right when the Federal Reserve goes into their quiet period. So we're not going to hear a lot of reaction from members of the Federal Reserve in, uh, by the time we get the, uh, the numbers until the, we actually get the release of the uh, meeting minutes, uh, meeting statement on uh, March 22nd. All right. The Fed meets. It's less than two weeks away, the 21st, the 22nd. Already after that February jobs report, swaps are talking about the chance of a 50 basis point hike now only at 50 percent. So a lot of people counting on a smaller one. Is anybody counting on a supersized one even bigger than 50 basis points? Yeah, I, I think that given the volatility and some of the issues that we're having in the financial sector right now that really affected rates late in the week uh, last week, um, you know, moving two-year yields 25 basis points because of what went on with SVB and, and some of the other financial institutions um, in the equity market, that, that 75 is, is it, it, you know, almost a 0% probability at this point, I think. But um, so the question still remains 50 or 25. Uh, you know, you get somewhat slower PPI data, somewhat slower retail sales data, and then, you know, 55 probably becomes more likely. Um, you, you know, the probability that that chance that you mentioned of a 50 or 25, that keeps bouncing around massively. So the, the market is still very skittish as and and really uncertain about what the Fed's move is going to be. Um, just because this coming week's data is so incredibly important to that decision. And Jay Powell, made that exceptionally clear um, over during his testimony last week before the House Financial Services Committee and the Senate Banking Committee. And about that data, good news, we have Jess right here. And Jess, why don't we talk about, well, first we're going to get CPI on right. Tuesday, then PPI, and uh, then we'll get to retail sales. But let's talk about those two and, and the difference and what you're looking forward to seeing. Well, the big thing, and as you know, the big focus is always on consumer prices, but producer prices might arguably just be as important. And the reason is when I'm talking with my sources, they like to look toward that as far as what do input costs look like. And they look to that as far as maybe we'll see the signs of relief there before they start filtering into consumer prices. So I've been tracking the CPI PPI spread. And this is something Gina Martin Adams of Bloomberg Intelligence her team crunched the numbers very frequently on. And the spread actually turned positive for the first time in December in two years. And the reason that matters is that bodes well for corporate margins and then in turn eventually also for stock prices. So you are seeing those glimmers of hope there on the producer prices side, even though in January's data we saw it tick up a bit. But if we can see that trend continue, when I'm speaking with my sources, they feel like that will eventually filter even more so toward consumer prices. So that's going to be a big focus next week as well, in addition to just the headline number on CPI. And and the headline number is we're looking at a, a four-tenths of one percent increase. Correct. And that is lower than January. It is. Exactly. And then year over year, that would be at six percent. I know we focus more on month over month to see that trend, but something that also is important, if you look at the past eight hiking cycles of the Federal Reserve, they didn't stop until the terminal rate was above CPI. So we still have a bit of a gap there, but it's beginning to narrow more. So the question is, how much further, obviously, would the Federal Reserve have to go? If you even just look at the bank side of things, 
Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, they had actually lifted their forecast recently that they're expecting 50 basis points at this next meeting. But JP Morgan and Bank of America are still holding that view of 25 basis points. But a lot of that does hinge on what that CPI data is going to look like next week. So that's going to be really key to see how do these banks views change potentially on what that number does look like. And Ira, how does that factor in with with your thinking on what the Fed is thinking? Yeah, so I, I think it's important to, to note that, um, you know, that the Fed has tended to hike until, uh, quote unquote, the federal funds rate has been positive. But keep in mind that, that the indicator that they look at for, um, for for the inflation gauge, their preferred measure is the PCE deflator. So um, and, and the gap between CPI and PCE has widened quite a lot. It used to be around 45, 50 basis points. Now it's over 100 basis points. So so, so the fact that you have this this big divide between those two inflation measures um, you know, you know, I think is important because uh, if if um, if PCE the, the PCE deflator remains around 5.4 percent, then if the Federal Reserve hikes another 75 basis points, they're there. Whereas if if the Federal Reserve um, were to only um, uh, were to look at CPI, they might have to actually hike much higher because you're talking about you know six percent uh, uh, a six percent uh, CPI number this week, assuming that we get it. Now, importantly, the the a lot of the inflation data that we look at, and if you look at CPI on that uh, three month rolling basis uh, CPI has come off quite a lot and when you look at um, and when you look at core goods in particular they're actually growing at a negative uh, rate so so the good sector inflation is over it's really going to be you know where is uh, how does the services sector inflation really ramp up particularly the uh, what uh, Jay Powell has said is is kind of the Fed's new um, measure that they really look at, which is core uh, services excluding housing. So around 40% of CPI is is this core services that services excluding energy services. So um, if those if those data come out uh, you know very strong, then the Federal Reserve, while they might only go 25 basis points, remember we also get the summary of economic projections, which includes that dot plot. So it's possible that if inflation seems to be sticking year than uh, the Fed is hoping, then those dots could go higher and we could see a higher terminal rate being priced in. So again, like instead of five and a half percent, maybe it's five and three quarters or six percent winds up getting placed in those dot plots. And I think that the market will react to any significant uptick in, in the dots this month. I'm glad you brought up the dot plots because on the equity side of things, when I've been speaking with my sources, they feel like, especially portfolio managers, they feel like the equity market can withstand a potential peak terminal rate of around five and a half percent, maybe even a little bit higher. But something that spooks them is more when it gets potentially closer, if it were to happen at six percent or higher. But they feel like when you're looking at where the market is trying to figure that out at the end of January, it was just below five percent. Now it's those projections trying to figure out maybe that's around five and a half percent. Barclays was actually thinking that the median dot plot could potentially rise from five point one percent, which it was in December, to potentially five point four percent. So even if we do see that happen with the Federal Reserve, when it comes to the equity markets, they're arguing that if that is where the Fed does go, you might not necessarily see some sort of sell-off in the broader equity markets, because that's kind of what they've been pricing in. But if you see sort of a dramatic change there, where maybe it's above 5.5%, that's where potentially we could see some bigger movements and bigger swings to the downside in stock prices. One other big data point coming out this week, retail sales. Retail sales, the survey says... 0.1% month-over-month increase. 
At least it's an increase. Nothing like what we saw in January. Well, especially because that number in January came in a lot stronger than expected than even in December. Typically, you would you would see that in December because that ties into holiday sales. But that also carried over into January. So some of that potentially has arguably been maybe it's due to seasonality factors. But if we do begin to see that pull back, that could actually potentially bode well for equity prices because they kind of want to see this sweet spot where obviously you want the consumer spending because that's more than two-thirds of what's pushing the economy and growing the economy, but not spending so much to where this is keeping the inflation equation a problem for the Federal Reserve. So it's pulling it back enough to where you feel like what the Federal Reserve has been doing is beginning to filter into the economy, but not so much to where you are starting to worry about the economy going into a recession. Ira, Jess, thanks so much for joining us. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak weekend, we head to London to preview the UK Chancellor's upcoming budget proposal. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, Apple's partner Foxconn plans to invest about $700 million on a new plant in India. But first, in the U.K., the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt will unveil his tax and spending plans in the coming days with the business community calling on him to incentivize investment and tackle skills shortages. This as the U.K. economy narrowly avoided recession last year. For more, let's head to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. Tom, Jeremy Hunt has downplayed hopes of any major largesse from the UK government in this budget, but an improvement in the economic situation is giving him a bit more room to manoeuvre. He faces calls for giveaways, including freezing fuel duty, improving public sector pay, and something he's considering, according to Bloomberg reporting, tax breaks to boost business investment. On Bloomberg Radio, we've been discussing this with Tina Lee, Deutsche Bank's UK and Ireland chief executive. For me, it's really around how do you create an environment that attracts investment, um, whilst at the same time dealing with some very real issues that are not yet resolved. And, and we've seen the news around the Fed and making sure that inflation is something which needs to be overcome. Um, and that's true here in the UK as well. So more broadly, I think what I'll be looking for is um, what happens around you know public sector pay, because again, that will feed through into the inflationary numbers. And, and ultimately, 
set the tone, I think, for the latter half mm-hmm. of the year. Because remember, I mean, we do have a backdrop of um, the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yes. Uh, and whilst that not has yet been signed, I think we, we, we're all optimistic that that will happen. So that's Tina Lee from Deutsche Bank. Bloomberg Senior UK Economist Dan Hansen is with me now for more on this. Dan, looking ahead then to the budget, what sort of fiscal headroom, how much money does Jeremy Hunt have to play with? Yeah, so he, I think it's the way to think about it is sort of in two, through two lenses. One is in the short term. So in the short term, he's got a lot. So he, borrowing has come in significantly under what the OBR was expecting, somewhere in the region of 30 to 40 billion pounds. So this fiscal year and next fiscal year, we think borrowing will be around that much lower. So, the, so that's a lot. Um, but what's important for his fiscal rule, so the Chancellor wants debt to be falling as a share of GDP in the final year of the forecast period, which is 2027 28 mm-hmm. Against that target, in November he had £9 billion. We think he might have about double that this time, so an extra £8, £9 billion. So it's, and I think what's really important, so the point is that the, the good news this year will dissipate over the course of the forecast period and there'll be a, there'll be a little pot of money at the end. What I would say is that in the context of a three trillion pound economy, which is how big the UK will be, nine million pounds is is peanuts. So Very there there is there is some money there might be a bit of money there, but to really go ahead and we've been hearing about potential for tax cuts, but to really go ahead and do something meaningful, he hasn't really got the headroom to do that just yet. So I think I mean, we'll talk about the policies he, he might focus on, but I think, you know, I think it's going to be a lot of it's going to be around near term temporary measures that he's going to use. He's going to use that near term headroom and probably bank that money just and use it closer to the election. What's the broader economic backdrop here? We had been told, I mean, the Bank of England gave us dire forecasts for a recession in the UK. Things are looking a little bit better now. How are they looking for this year? So I think they're looking they're looking a lot better. I mean, I think we've spoken this year, um, and the key thing that's happened. Well, there are two key things that have happened. First is the data's just shown more momentum, more resilience, and the second thing, as we all know, we've had this big fall in gas prices, and those two things combined, I think, will mean that the OBR will predict it probably will still predict a recession, but a very very shallow one, and probably only lasting in the first half of this year with growth or some very very minimal growth returning in the second half of the year. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously a very different picture to what they were talking about in November, which was a peak to trough fall in GDP of a little over 2%. Um, you know, if it, it wouldn't surprise me if the peak to trough fall in GDP was less than 1% now, so cutting the size of the recession in half. So the news has been good on the economy, um, particularly in the near term. I think the question for the public finances, though, isn't just about the near-term picture, it's about the medium-term picture as well, and that feeds into the, the, the questions around productivity growth, around labour force participation, and actually there, which goes back to why we don't think the sort of good news on the public finances will last, we think the OBR will probably take a slightly dimmer view of the UK's medium-term prospects, and what that does, how that interacts with the fiscal picture, is that it means that tax receipts don't grow as fast, and it means the fiscal picture isn't quite as rosy looking when you look at the medium term which is where his fiscal target sits so that's something to watch out when we get the the office office for budget responsibilities um report as well which is of course the government's fiscal watchdog is there anything then given that context is there anything the chancellor can do to try and boost growth at this stage or is it really just only the short-term prospects that he can look at it goes to to, there again i'll split it into two buckets one is the near-term pitch, we know he wants to halve inflation. We know that's one of the government's goals. 
Um, so that means you want to you don't want to do anything that's going to put that at risk. So I think as things stand, the inflation picture has probably improved a little bit as well in the UK. Uh, we've had data out that suggests it's it's a little bit the underlying picture is a little bit weaker than most economists are expecting. Obviously, the falling gas prices has a big effect as well going through the course of this year. And one thing I think he'll do is keep the the cap on the unit cost of energy prices at two and a half thousand pounds, mm, rather which is than really re- important for households, of course. Exactly. So that's so that's one thing that's that's. But he's 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 definitely going to be focused, I think, at least at least at this point, and taking into account the fact he doesn't have a huge amount of headroom to play with yeah. for sort of medium term tax tax cuts that affect the medium term picture. I think he's just going to very much be focused on shorter term if there are giveaways, ones that affect the public finances in the near term, but don't affect the medium term picture. So as I say, the the um, the price cap on uh, household energy bills, we might see something around uh, capital allowances. But again, I think that will likely be a temporary thing rather than a permanent thing. Um, and the whole point here is in the whole sort of bigger political backdrop is that you have an election probably next year and it's the point at which essentially he uses up all his firepower to say to the electorate look this is our offering and I think probably now is a little bit early and the fiscal picture doesn't quite allow for it as well but I think now is is just a bit early for him to go ahead and do that. Yeah I mean it's interesting that you talk about some of those allowances because we we have been reporting that he's considering doing something around incentivizing investment. This is sort of a, a long running problem within the UK economy, particularly since Brexit is trying to get businesses to invest more. How how can you put that in in context for us? How big a problem is that in for the UK? Yeah, economy? I mean it's a huge it's a huge problem. I mean I think I think the level of in- business investment now has only just about got back to its pre-pandemic level. So it's 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 really struggled to recover from the pandemic and if you look at it in the context of what's happened as you say since the the brexit referendum we're well beneath the performance of other g7 economies the uk economy so i think there there's some there is definitely something to be done there the context again here though is that the government has put in place a massive rising corporation tax that's going to take effect from april yeah 19 from, to 25 yeah exactly so you've got a six percentage point rise in the, the ct rate that's obviously a massive disincentive for investment at a time when interest rates are going through the roof so what the government is going to try and do is sweeten that that hit essentially by introducing tax allowances and mm. this is something that rishi sunak toyed with when he was chancellor he introduced this temporary super deduction and this is something that's actually expiring um at the end of at the end of March, and I think the government will want to hunt will want to put something in place to at least temporarily replace that. Bloomberg's senior UK economist Dan Hansen, thank you very much for your insights. I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at six a.m. in London and one a.m. on Wall Street. Tom, thanks, Stephen. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we head to DC and get a look at the week ahead in the nation's capital. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. The Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin. Investment professionals reveal their best mentors, how they find their next great idea, and a few funny stories. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate, and where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions, alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. To London. DAB Digital Radio. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. We head to Washington, D.C. now for a look ahead at the week in politics. We're joined now by Bloomberg Sound On host Joe Matthew. Joe? Thanks, Tom. We're going to look ahead now to the first Republican primary on the calendar. That would be Iowa, the 5th of February, 2024. The fact of the matter is the candidates are not waiting. Ron DeSantis in Iowa today. We are going to go on offense. I'm going to find issues. I'm not just going to sit back and wait for it to come to me. And I sat at my desk the first day as governor. I looked around the office and I said, you know, I don't know what SOB is going to succeed me in this office, but I can tell, I'll tell you this, they are not going to have very much to do because I'm taking all the meat off the bone there is, and I'm going to get all this done. You wonder why he assumes the next governor's an SOB? Like, what if they're friends? But I digress. On his way to Iowa for the first time since announcing next week, Donald Trump. You know, Ron DeSanctimonious had a crowd in Staten Island today. 139 people in Staten Island. We got a lot of people. We have 139 times about 30. We got a lot of people here. But I always say, hit your enemy a little bit early. Some people say don't, but I say do. Okay, that was back in February, almost a year to the date ahead of voting. And we're joined by Bloomberg Government Congress reporter Emily Wilkins and Bloomberg politics reporter Ryan Teak back with as we take a peek into the landscape of 2024 and look a little bit into the week ahead. Ryan, it's great to see you here. Uh, Thanks for coming along. Iowa, of course, we do need to establish this. It's a separate calendar for Republicans and Democrats this time, but we're talking the Republican field. How important is Iowa going to be for Donald Trump? You know, uh, he didn't win Iowa in 2016, uh, I think that he's he's doing better among Iowa voters now than he did then. He sort of established that uh, beachhead. So I I don't think losing there is um, killer for him. I think he could he could withstand that. If he's on the ropes against a guy named DeSantis, though, could it be more imperative to start winning early? Yeah, I think that there it's definitely the field is going to narrow much faster than in 2016 when he last faced a competitive one and it was sort of dragging on about who was going to be the mysterious candidate X to find to be in the final two. And I think that ultimately divided the competition. So I think that there's going to be a push among everyone if if someone shows themselves strong in an early state like Iowa to among Republicans to sort of anoint that person as that's it. This is the alternative to Trump and and get behind that person quickly. Are we assuming Ron DeSantis is running here, Ryan? 
Yeah, I mean, I it's this you know, it, I almost corrected you. They went there when you called him a candidate because technically he's not yet right. running. But I mean, you know, uh-huh. he's running, so okay. that's where we're at. Emily Wilkins, what do you think? Uh, Donald Trump's acting like Ron DeSantis is running. Ron DeSantis is acting like Ron DeSantis is running, but he's in no hurry to announce, right? I don't think one just goes to Iowa casually and <laughs> it's gives, pretty nice this gives time a giant year. speech, especially when one is the governor of the state of Florida. Yeah. And and to be to you know, to, to the to your question, which is a great one, of when he's actually going to get in the race, I mean what he has said and what sort of those near to him have, have implied that he's going to wait until the Florida state legislature session is over, which makes sense in a way. I mean, he's he's already kind of a known quantity out there. He's not someone uh, who could kind of benefit from getting into a race like this, being one of the first couple to really get in and get his name out there. Um, at the same point, it kind of makes sense for him to, you know, be able to focus on finishing up what's what's going on in the Florida state legislature, because certainly some of those things will be things that he will run on when he does launch his campaign. Yeah, that's right. And he's getting a lot of publicity from stuff he's doing as governor. Absolutely. I mean, I think if you're Nikki Haley, you have to be you know, campaigning for anyone to pay attention to you because you don't have a day job, right? But like he's Florida governor and every, literally every bill he does is something that's designed to- To get national media, right? Tickle the national media, yeah. you know, and get Republican voters excited. So he doesn't really need to be officially running to get attention. He hasn't gone after uh, Donald Trump, certainly not in the way Trump has gone after him, but he has been asked about that. And he's he's been very careful in choosing his words uh, to react. This is Ron DeSantis, the beginning of February. I spend my time delivering results for the people of Florida and fighting against Joe Biden. That's how I spend my time. Okay, big round of applause on that one. You know, he's not here to attack other candidates. This is the, the Republicans, the idea. I don't spend my time trying to smear other Republicans. There it is. So, Emily, though, at a certain point, he's probably going to have to, right? You can't beat Donald Trump without going up against Donald Trump, without getting in the ring, right? Absolutely. But at the same point, I I think to a certain extent, if you are a Republican running for the nomination right now, you are not trying to completely isolate Trump supporters at this point. You're trying to figure out a way how you can appeal to some of those supporters, get them over on their side. So it's probably not a good idea right out the bat to slam the guy too hard. Um, But certainly, you know, as this continues, if DeSantis and Trump both wind up continuing to be the strong nominees that they seem to be at Mm -hmm. this point in the game. Yeah, eventually you're you're going to be seeing a little more headbutting between the two of them. You know, Ryan, we mentioned the fact that the primaries in February, we've got debates way before that. When does this field finally come together or will we actually have some debates without a full field this summer? I mean, you could have people filing as late as the fall if they feel like there's sure. a weak point. Uh, you know, you've seen in in the when we've had bigger fields and I, I have a story about this right now. I mean, there's in some past years, there were like seven, eight, nine people running by this point. Mm-hmm. Um, but there also have been years where it, they didn't really kick in until May or June. So it, we're not it, we're not anywhere near the final field. Um, we've only had one person who people were watching, Larry Hogan, former Maryland yeah, governor, bow out. out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so far, there's a lot of other people who are at least keeping their names alive as potential candidates, which is sometimes just a ploy to get more attention for your book or whatever, hmm. whatever Mike you're aim, aim, angling for. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you know, there's a chance that somebody might come in if they if DeSantis looks like he's not as strong against Trump as some of the folks who don't want Trump are hoping, then there might be some late 
joining uh, person. Um, I mean, I think there's also a real question of uh, the debates. I mean, whether they can pull this together. Like, I, Trump has not said that he will support the eventual nominee. Right. Ronna McDaniel, the RNC chair, has said that she wants to require all the candidates to agree to that before they get on stage. Some of the some of the anti-Trump candidates have said that they wouldn't do mm-hmm. that for if it was Trump. So that's kind of messy. Um, it's it's also just potential that, you know, if Trump decides not to show up at a debate, like is anyone going to watch if it's DeSantis <laughs> debating like Nikki Haley? I mean, I'd, he, he could just sort of kill the whole format. I know how, how he would answer that. Uh, <laughs> it's all, well, about, he loves the ratings. Ratings, it's all right? about the ratings. And now as, as Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump and, and others head for Iowa, Joe Biden is is heading to the West Coast next week. Emily Wilkins, this is all about the budget. This is the post-State of the Union, post-budget roadshow that now begins. Once all the bluster is out there, though, when do actual negotiations begin between these two parties? We know the Republican budget won't be out for weeks, maybe a couple months. Yeah, at this point, they've got that going on. At the same point, remember that the negotiations around the budget and the debt limit Mm -hmm. are still somewhat similar from the negotiations around actually funding the government for the next year. And that's something that we expect lawmakers to really start digging in. Uh, The White House releasing their budget is kind of the unofficial kickoff of that of that happening. Um, And I think it's going to be very interesting this year with Republicans in the House running the floor with only a five vote margin. They have vowed to bring, you know, they've got a huge government. They break it up into 12 spending bills. It it is really difficult for them to actually bring all 12 spending bills to the floor, kind of go through the, the regular process, if you will. But that is what Republicans are really pushing for right now. Thanks to Ryan Teague Beckwith and Emily Wilkins. And Tom, there's a programming note, an important one for you, starting Monday, Balance of Power moves to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg Television. Now hosted by Anne-Marie Hordern and myself, we'll be at the intersection of Washington and Wall Street every weekday, bringing you the latest political news. Balance of Power at a new time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Television. Tom? Thanks, Joe, and good luck on the new show. And be sure to tune into Bloomberg Sound On weekdays from 1 to 3 p.m. Wall Street time here on Bloomberg Radio. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, an Apple supplier focuses on India. We'll bring you the details. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new monthly edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes today. American Funds Distributors, Inc. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. 
We learned this week that iPhone parts maker Foxconn Technology Group plans to invest about $700 million on a new plant in India to ramp up local production. For more now, we're joined by Bloomberg Daybreak Asia anchors Doug Krisner and Brian Curtis. Tom, with U.S.-China tensions simmering as they are, Apple supplier Honhai has confirmed that it will set up a new plant in India. The confirmation caused quite a stir in China as it raises the prospect of Apple shifting its manufacturing supply chain out of China. And indeed, Bloomberg reported this week that Apple itself is expected to increase its focus on India. Hanhai, or Foxconn, as it's often called, will invest $700 million on a new plant in India's Karnataka state. One of the big issues for the company over the past year has been the lockdowns in China. Yes, and even though China has reopened, Foxconn said this week that sales dropped 11.7% in February from a year earlier. Even with the strong January, it raised a few eyebrows. Doug and I thought we would explore all the questions raised by Foxconn making this decision to do more in India. Bloomberg Tech Editor Vlad Savov joins us. What do we think is the prime reason, Vlad, that Foxconn is doing this? It's uh, one that Foxconn itself is not going to say, but it really is uh, customer demand. And Foxconn's biggest customer is Apple, as we well know. Um, But it is a theme and a trend that really transcends these two uh, titans of the industry, uh, as we might put them. Um, Fellow Taiwanese suppliers such as Wistron um, are also looking to expand in India. Uh, We heard from a GoaTech executive, uh, a Chinese supplier that's expanding in Vietnam, and he spoke uh, perhaps most candidly out of any of the supply chain executives, really just saying customers want this. They want us to have alternatives to China. Now, nobody's saying take our manufacturing out of China uh, and put it elsewhere, but what customers are really asking for is more geographic diversification. So that diversification, I would imagine, is kind of like an insurance uh, policy against problems down the road with your supply chain. So in effect, it's not as much as an increase in capacity. It's more about redundancy. Am I right or wrong in that? That's right. That's right. Um, Now, that being said, it is interesting. Like one of the bits of off-the-cuff analysis that you could put together is to just look at uh, iPhone production in India in recent times. Uh, Now, Foxconn, again, is one of the leading assemblers there. Uh, That doubled uh, in in the past year, and it is happening much faster relative to production and assembly of iPhones in China. And when you look at iPhone sales uh, on an annual basis, they're kind of flat. So if iPhone sales overall are flat and India production is increasing, that kind of tends to give you the suggestion that some production is moving out of China. We've long thought that American manufacturing might move to India, but one of the big problems in the past has been infrastructure. They simply haven't had the same sort of uh, supply chains uh, developing there that we've seen in China, nor the physical attributes to get it from uh, facility to port to customer. Has that changed? It should be changing over time. Of course, nobody has China's infrastructure system. we, the other thing we have to bear in mind is that so many of the raw materials and the basic supplies and the basic components that go into devices are there made in China. So you're covering smaller ground, smaller distances, even if you don't have the world-class infrastructure that China has. Now, the other thing to bear in mind is the $700 million plan that Foxconn is planning is to primarily start with iPhone components. Down the line, it may actually assemble iPhones too, but that's what we're seeing here as well. India itself is subsidizing companies like Foxconn setting up factories. 
it is providing its own investment in its own infrastructure. And then companies like Foxconn are building, um, let's say, the peripheral uh, ecosystem around an iPhone factory. Vlad, thanks so much for joining us and shedding some light on this story, which speaks to a much bigger story down the road. Bloomberg Tech editor Vlad Savov. I'm Brian Curtis, along with Doug Krisner. You can catch us every weekday here for Bloomberg Daybreak Asia, beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong and 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Brian and Doug, and that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.